take your Bible and open it back to the book of Jonah. Open it to Jonah as we close Jonah this morning. And I don't think, as you're turning there, I've told you about the religious father whose son was studying for the ministry. And in order to study for the ministry, the son decided to go to Europe for an advanced degree. And the father worried that unbelieving professors would spoil his simple faith. And the father said to the son, don't let them take Jonah away from you. Figuring the swallowed by a great fish story might be the first part of the Bible to go. Well, two years later, the son returned and his father asked, do you still have Jonah in your Bible? And the son just laughed. And he said to his father, Jonah isn't even in your Bible. And the father replied, it certainly is. What do you mean? And the son laughed again. It's not in your Bible. Show it to me. And the father began to fumble through his Bible, looking for the book of Jonah, but he he couldn't find it. And at last he checked the table of contents for the proper page. And when he turned there, he discovered that three pages comprising Jonah had been carefully cut from his Bible. And the son said to his dad, I did it before I went away. And then the son said, what's the difference between my losing the book of Jonah through studying under non-believers or you, you losing it through neglect? I guess well said. Now, I don't want to encourage any of you young people to do that, but it could be there and we neglect it. And so lest we neglect this wonderful book, I I want you to open to the book of Jonah. We close it out today. We preached on it. I did for 10 weeks. And as I reflect back on our 10-week study of Jonah, I've often thought how I might best bring closure to this very fascinating book. You know, it's always hard for me when you finish a book, you kind of say goodbye for a little bit to a good friend that you've been talking with to the Lord and studying for 15, 20 hours a week to prepare. And so it's always a little bitter sweet. But I think the best way to conclude the book of Jonah is to leave you with a couple of wonderful truths. There's many ways to finish, but I think two truths come out and are very, very prominent. First, Jonah is not primarily a book about Jonah the prophet. You know that. Though it's titled Jonah, it's not really about Jonah the prophet. It's not really a book about a great fish. It's a book first and foremost about who? It's about God. The book is about God's pity. The book is about God's compassion. If your Bible's open, look there at chapter 4, 11. There's the, the whole thesis of the entire book. When God said, and should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. Really, the book is about God. It's about his pity and his compassion. So Jonah first is a book about the greatness of God's character. 
Secondly, a little bit backdoor, but not backdoor at all in some ways, it's a book about the greatness of his son. So it's a book about God, and it's a book about the greatness of his son. And so really, when you look at the theme of Jonah, it's about God, and it's about the gospel. And Jonah presents Christ to us. And I will show you that in a little bit of time. And I'm asking you this morning as you walk into this, because we never just study things as history, all books under the inspiration and the authority of Scripture have a point to them. And here it's showing us God and it's showing us Christ. And I'm asking you this morning if you share the heart of God in your relationship to others. He's going to show us his own heart. And then I'm going to ask you if you know the Savior. Do you know his heart? Do you know what Jesus is all about? So first, let's look at the greatness of God's character, okay? The greatness of God's character. And to do that, I want to go to one verse that's profound. Look back in chapter 4-2. And I just touched on this in the exposition. Wasn't able to exposit from it thoroughly. And so I want to go back to it. Not in review, but touch on aspects that I never hit before. And by the way, all of our messages are online and on our app, and you can send those and hear those and download. But here it is in 4.2. It's Jonah. Remember, the people got saved in chapter 3, 4.1. It displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. What a great statement there in verse 2. Jonah basically tells why he fled. He fled because he knew this to be true of God's character. And he makes that statement there in 4.2. And there's at least 10 different places in the Old Testament where that statement is made. And it's a statement regarding the character of God. And so here he affirms five truths regarding his character. And I want to walk those through with you. And I'm asking you if you see and understand God's character in this way. When you load up in your mind the person of God, when you conceive of God, when you think of God, and when you think of who He is, is this the portrait that comes into your mind? So what Jonah's going to recite here is attributes of God. He's going to tell us what God is like. And what's kind of fascinating in this, at least in the first two that are mentioned in the exact wording, when he says that you're a gracious God and merciful, they're the only places in all of Scripture that it says that of God. It it only says that of God. In other words, in an ultimate sense, he is the only one that is gracious and merciful. So very well, let's look into these, these characteristics of God. First, he says, gracious, gracious. And stay with me for a little bit because I got to unpack these. Gracious, what is that? Well, it's compassionate is, is what the word means. It's gracious. It's, it's, it's compassionate. And so you're, you're compiling statements out of the word of God that are true on his character. And when you think of God, when you contemplate God, he's gracious. 
He's a gracious God. He's compassionate. Built within that Hebrew word is the idea of pity. And, and it's the idea here, here of showing or having compassion or showing or having, we would say God is gracious. It, it's the concept of granting favor, okay? And, I, and I'm really just kind of giving you a, a biblical description because that's really the only thing we care about here, right? I, when I tell you about a word, I'm not just telling you about a word just to tell you about a word. We're describing God, and so we want to get it right, right? And I, and I want to get it right. But when, when you see that word, gracious, it describes in Scripture a heartfelt response by someone who has something to give to one who is in need. That's what the word means. It is the action in Scripture of one who is superior to an inferior who has no reason for the gracious act. That's God. He's gracious. He's superior. We're inferior. We, we don't deserve it, but he gives us that grace. In fact, just as a statement, and we don't have the time to do this, but the plea in the Scripture, especially in the Psalms, is be, quote, gracious to me. It appears 19 different times in the Psalms. And the psalmist is asking God to show him favor, if you will, in view of 2516, his loneliness. To show them his grace, his favor in 319, in view of his distress. Or to show him and to be gracious to the writer because of his own sin, Psalm 51.1, where the favor he asks for is that God will erase the indictment against him. So it means to be gracious. It means to be compassionate. So listen, as you think of God, as you think of Nineveh, and as I pointed out the horrendous, wicked nation that it was, think of God coming to that people. He's gracious. But, but I thought, how can I capture this so that you can see it even a little clearer? And I just have one more scripture for you, and I want you to see it. It's where the words used. Would you look in the book of Exodus? The book of Exodus, turn there just for a moment. Keep your hand in Jonah, but look over at Exodus chapter 20. It might just be a way for you to see how this word is used in Scripture. And it's just a, a, a command there about social justice and all that stuff and what their laws were to people. But it's in 22, in verse 20. Uh, back up in five, 25, 22, 25. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not uh, be like a money lender to him and you shall not exact interest from him, okay? Now watch this, twenty-two, twenty-six. If you ever take your neighbor's cloak in pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. Okay, we get that, but watch this. For that, God says, is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. In what else shall he sleep? And if he, God says, cries to me, I will hear, and now this phrase, for I am, what? Compassionate 
Now, that's that word, the Hebrew term for gracious. So it's not a different term. It's the same term. God says, you better return his coat to him because if the guy with no coat cries out to me, God says, I'm going to hear him. And here's why. For I am compassionate. I mean, what a statement, Grace Church. God just simply, I don't know how you conceive of him in your mind. I'm trying to help my own heart and you. He's gracious. He hears the cry of those who cry out to him. And I, I, I think when I read it, I'm like, come on. He even hears the dude with no coat. You think that's such a minor thing? I mean, I, compared to other big things, God hears the guy that doesn't get his coat returned to him. He may even still owe the man a debt, but we're given a profound display of God's compassion towards those in need and in the book towards the Ninevites. So I'm just asking, God's compassionate towards people. Are you? Now, you might need to receive that or you might need to give it. But all I know is when you talk about God, talk about his character, Jonah said, I ran. And the reason I ran, God, because I knew, in my words, if I preached to those people, I knew you'd save them because I knew you were gracious. But there's a second characteristic. Look over in Jonah 4, 2. He's not only gracious and compassionate, but he's merciful, merciful, merciful. Two concepts. First, the strong tie that God has with those whom he calls his children. Psalm 103, verse 13. He's merciful to his children. And God looks upon his own, if you will, as a father would look upon his children. And it says in Micah 7.17 that he has pity on them. So they're very similar. He's gracious, he's merciful, but, but he has pity is the thought. But also that word mercy is the second concept that God is that God's unconditional choice, if I could say it that way, his unconditional grace, that it says in, and I, this might even be up on the screen, there it says that in, when he tells Moses, top one there, he is gracious and merciful to whomever he, what, chooses. And that's the account of the Ninevites. And, and Jonah thought, he gave his mercy to me. He gave his mercy to Israel. But God wants to be clear that when he speaks of his character and gives out his mercy, he is sovereign over whom he gives that mercy to. In fact, it, it's God saying this in his character, in the word. I love deeply, God says. I have mercy I am compassionate. And when you look at that word mercy, it is a deep, it's hard to even say it, because we're not talking about a machine here. We're not talking about the great watchmaker in the sky who kind of set it in motion and let it go. We're talking about God who has a deep inward feeling of compassion, of pity, of mercy. The idea is even softness and gentleness that God in this scripture is tender in his affection. It's hard to believe because what he is sometimes we're not. 
And so I'm asking if there's any Pharisees here this morning who can't show this to other people. Because God shows it to you in incredible ways, does he not? But who would we be then to not turn that out towards people who sin against you or or commit some kind of sin? Or maybe you're here this morning and you're thinking, I've done something that God could never forgive me for. No, 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 listen. He's gracious and he's merciful. He has compassion. The word was used, interestingly, it's it, it for the womb, not room, but the womb of, of a woman. And it has the connotations of motherly love. And in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 30, the Lord your God is a merciful God. So he's gracious, he's merciful. Remember in the New Testament, the perfect picture, the portrait of mercy is the waiting father embracing the prodigal son as a moving illustration of God's mercy. So he's gracious, he's merciful. Look at these scriptures that maybe come up on your screen. Second Chronicles 39, if you return to the Lord, your brothers and your children will find compassion with their captors and return to this land. For the Lord your God is gracious and merciful and will not turn away his face from you. In Nehemiah, he's talking about the nation of Israel. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful. Here's the whole statement in Jonah 4.2. Slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and he did not forsake them. Says, look down in Psalm 116, verse 5. Gracious is the Lord. Our God is merciful. And so you have these statements all over the scripture. That's our God. That's who our God is. Spurgeon put it this way. God's mercy is so great that you may sooner drain the sea of its water or deprive the sun of its light or make space too narrow than diminish the great mercy of God. So here's Jonah. It's about God. He's gracious. He's merciful. Look again in 4.2. Jonah says, I ran because I knew that you were slow to what? Anger. Again, I don't know how your picture of God is, but in his character, as revealed in the word of God, He's got a very slow fuse. He's never angry in a rash way. And whenever he's angry, it's only in a righteous way. And when it describes God's character, and you think of the Ninevites, he's slow to anger. In, in fact, it's kind of funny. I'm not trying to be funny. But in Hebrews 80, uh, excuse me, in Psalms 86.15, when it talks about God being slow to anger, the Hebrew term... <laughs> means that he's long of nose, okay? Comes from a compound word, meaning that he's not fuming mad, okay? He's long of nose. He's, he, he, you don't see God huffing and puffing and angry. And, and then you think about how slow to anger he was with the Ninevites, how slow to anger he was through the reluctant prophets. But when you think of someone who flies off the handle, 
or who just went berserk or who just, you know, whatever we say, they, they just respond ra- not with God. It's gracious. He's merciful. He's slow to anger. Remember in Romans 2, 4, when it says, do you, not pre- do, you, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Patience in the scripture is the positive virtue. Slow to anger is, in other words, he's not over-responding too quickly. He's gracious. He's kind. He's merciful, compassionate. He's patience, then, on the other hand, is the virtue of, of being slow to anger. Uh, Paul received the patience of Jesus Christ. And, and then I'm thinking about us, not to move it from God to us, but I'm thinking these are attributes. He's slow to anger. A positive way to say it is he's patient. Those are what we call attributes that are to be ours as believers. We're to be patient with people. We're to be long-suffering with people. We're to have a slow fuse. Remember, I think I explained that in the book of James. Um, the word in the New Testament, I don't know, just if it helps me, it might help you, is macrothumia, okay? You don't have to understand Greek to get patience, but it's just macrothumia. Macro, you understand macro. If something's micro, it's short and small. If something's macro, it's large, and we, we might say long, okay? So patience is macrothumia. Thumia comes from thumos, which is hot, which is anger. So when it says that we're to be patient, it says that God is patient, meaning that God has a very long fuse, In other words, we're to be patient and we're not to go berserk, become fuming, mad, you know, flare our nostrils, if you will. We're to be patient with people to have a very long fuse towards them. So I'm thinking about Jonah and I'm thinking about all these statements in Scripture. Do you remember, well, last night, hopefully you had maybe Valentine's dinner if you're married. The love chapter says in 1 Corinthians 13, 4, that love is what? Patient. It, what does that mean? It's long fused. Doesn't blow up. Doesn't blow off the handle. It's patient. What is patience? And think about this in terms of God's character and our response. Patience is the ability to be wronged and wronged again without ever losing your temper. To be wrong and to be wronged again without ever getting even. To be wrong and to be wrong again, wronged again without ever taking vengeance. It is, patience is with people to bear up without complaint. And God is slow to anger and we're to be patient with people. Look over just a few scriptures in the New Testament. Look over in Ephesians just for a moment. Look over there. And of course, this is an attribute that we're to take on as believers if you're in Christ. But I'm thinking of Ephesians chapter 4 in uh, verse 1 where he talks about being a prisoner of the Lord, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. And then he says in 4.2, with all humility and gentleness with, here's our word, what? Patience. Bearing with one another in love. There's our word, long fuse. We're to have a 
response in this body with people in our home, within the Christian community, with the unbeliever, we're to be patient with people. We're to be humble, gentle, patient. We're to bear up with other people. Look over just a few books to Colossians to the right there. Colossians chapter 3, great text there where he's telling us what our duty is as believers who have experienced the new birth and know Christ. Colossians 3.12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. What are we to put on? Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and what? Patience with people. We're just to be patient. We're to have a long fuse, if you will. God is that way. He's gracious. He's merciful. He's slow to anger. And because he exhibits that, we're to then, therefore, put that into practice. Can I show you one more? Turn right of Colossians just to 1 Thessalonians 5. Maybe my favorite one, as we think about our relationships with people, we urge you, brothers, 5.14, 1 Thess 5.14, admonish the idle, or literally the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and then he says this, to be what? Patient with them all. You're to be patient. And so here God is slow to anger, and sometimes we're just, we're the opposite of God. One time, this came to my mind this week. Many years ago, I was, we were in Chicago. Of course, I was pastoring in Chicago. And it was those years, and now they just seem like a distant memory, and I miss them, where we'd throw everybody into our van, you know. And um, we just put them all into the van, and we had this van that could, I don't know, seat 10 or 12 people, and it had two captain chairs at the, in the front. Patty and I would sit, and then seven you know, seven people and 14 eyes would be in the back. Well, I came out. We were in a hurry. I'm sure we were on our way to church, and I'm sure I was on my way to preach. And everybody was in the van, and I'm, I'm locking up and turning. And then as I get into the van, I notice that the garage is up, and all the bikes and big wheels are in there. And so I just hit the clicker, and I'm watching in the van. And sure enough, I can't believe it, a big wheel was in the way. And so, you know what happens when the garage comes down, and then it hits the big wheel, but it goes back up, and it was probably about zero degrees in Chicago. And so, I get out of the big wheel. I'm kind of mad. We're in a hurry. So, I just go over to the big wheel. The garage door is open. I just pick it, and I went like this, and I just threw it as far as I could into the back of the garage and took care of the problem. And then I came around, and I got into the van, and it was extremely quiet, And I turned around, and I saw 14 eyes going like this. They couldn't believe that I did that. I said, what? I took care of the problem. And it was just Simon. Everybody was just afraid. I mean, don't say anything to Dad. I mean, and I'm sure I was on my way to preach right there. Um, But I I just think, you know, those eyes are watching us when, when we have anger and we're not patient. But listen, when you think about God, he's never erred. He's gracious, he's merciful, he's slow to anger. Look again there, fourthly, he's a tremendous statement in 4.2 back in the book of Jonah. It says there that he's uh, abounding in steadfast love. It's a 
tremendous word, just a tremendous phrase. It speaks of kindness. It speaks of loving kindness. Is is what the word? It's 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 what we call sometimes an unfailing love, a, a loyal love. It, when you see that abounding in steadfast love, it even conveys the ideal of mercy, covenant love. It's an it's an attribute of God. In fact, is that statement up on the screen there? You, you know that one when the Lord passed before him. Everybody says Moses, you get in the cleft of the rock. The Lord, the God, you know, and here's our statement in Jonah. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and what? There it is. Abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And here's in that phrase, keeping steadfast love for thousands. He's faithful to that love. And what he does is he forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. So watch this. When Jonah went and preached and they repented, God forgave them of their sin because he forgives sin. That's his character. And then you have all these statements in the Psalms, like 8615, you, O Lord, look at it, they're all together, aren't they? Are a God merciful and gracious, see? Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Next slide, Psalm 103.8, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. 1 Samuel 145.8, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. It's all over the scripture that he's kind, that his love is an unfailing love. It's a, it's a covenant love, and practically we're to show that kindness as well. But look at the fifth and final attribute there. He's not only slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, but we touched on this more. I'll be brief here. He's relenting from disaster. He relented, did he not? Obviously, he said, I didn't want to go because I knew you're this God. In the last statement, he says, I knew you'd relent from disaster. So in Scripture, God makes promises, no question, that are contingent on our obedience. God threatened Nineveh with a warning, and with coming judgment, but the people repented, and consequently, they were not judged. And we've been saying all along, when Nineveh repented, God relented of the disaster that he would bring upon them. And that's what happens. The pronouncement of judgment upon Nineveh was conditioned on their repentance. And when that condition was fulfilled, God relented concerning the coming disaster. Think about this for Jonah. He didn't want to go because he knew God was kind. He didn't want to go because he knew God was gracious. He knew God was merciful. He knew God was slow to anger. He knew God was abounding in covenant, steadfast love. And he knew that if he went and they responded that he would relent. And sure enough, he went and preached and they responded wholesale, if you will, revival took place and he relented. And so Jonah, at the very beginning of the book, ran from the presence of the Lord. And this is the teaching of Scripture. This is our God. And so I'm just asking you, is that your heart? I'm asking me, is that my character? Listen, you may need to receive it today. Maybe you feel like you've sinned somewhere so deeply, somewhere in your past, and you just think God can't forgive me. Or you know what, pastor, if you knew what I did and you, no, listen, 
I'm telling you this morning, this is what I'm reading about the Ninevite nation, that God was gracious, that God was merciful, that God was just has long nose. He's slow to anger, that he's abounding in covenant faithfulness and love to you, and that if you repent, he will turn and relent of what might have come upon you and certainly upon this nation. So you may need to receive it, okay? But secondly, you may need to give it as well. You may need to give that to someone. Somebody's burned you in the past. Somebody put a knife proverbially in your back, you know. And listen, you can forgive them. Maybe there's things to work through the reconciliation. But listen, you can't ever maintain a longstanding in any way bitter heart knowing what God in Christ Jesus has done for you. So listen, beloved, let's be real clear. Jonah writes not to reveal himself, but he writes to reveal the glorious truth of the greatness of God's character. Campbell Morgan said, men have been looking so hard to find the great fish that they have failed to see the great God. And that's who he is. But then secondly, as we close our time, it reveals the greatness of God's son. So how so, Scott? I don't see Christ on any word in the book of Jonah. And I'd say, oh, no, he's all over it. You say, well, why is he all over it? Because you remember when he was walking on the road to Emmaus, he said everything that was written of me and all the prophets displayed me, right? And all the stuff in Corinthians that was written, it was written for our encouragement, and it points to Christ. You say, how does this point to Christ? Well, listen, God has the last word in the book of Jonah 4.11, but that's not the last word. Jesus has another word. Would you look over in Matthew 12? I've just, I just I alluded to this, but I didn't get you, get you this one. Look at Matthew 12. It's a profound. And I think you know where I'm going with this. Matthew 12, 38. In the gospel, remember? We see Jonah again. You say, how? Well, two, two rays. The scribes, some of the scribes, and I'm in 1238 of Matthew. And the Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. And he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it. Here Jesus said, except for the sign of the prophet who? Jonah. And here was the sign. Verse 40, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish. Very clear. It doesn't say a whale. It's a great fish. Could have been a whale, but it's a great fish. So will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. In other words, Jonah was twofold here in Matthew. He was a sign, just as Jonah was in that belly of that great fish, three days, three nights, Jesus Christ will be lifted up on the cross, if you will, and be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And scholars go to great elaborate pages to describe three nights and three days. It really wasn't three. It's a Hebrew way of calculating. He went into the Grave on Friday, he was there Friday, he was there Saturday, he was there part of Sunday. It counts in the Hebrew mind as three days and three nights. And so it becomes a picture. But that's not all. Look at verse 41. This is unbelievable. We're not even done with Jonah yet, even in the future. Because look what Jesus said in 41. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and what? condemn it. Can you imagine that? Jonah's going to speak into the future. The the book itself will. Why? Because when Jonah preached, Nineveh relented. 
when they heard the, the warning of judgment, they turned. And Jesus profoundly says, look at it again, they're going to rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. Why? For they repented at the preaching of what? Jonah. That's an unbelievable statement. Less, listen, enlightened people repented at the message of a reluctant prophet, but the Jewish religious people refused to obey the light of the world when he's standing in their presence. And Jesus says, listen, not only was it signed, but in the future, those who were redeemed in Nineveh are going to rise up at judgment day and condemn the generation in which Jesus preached to, namely the Pharisees and the scribes in that context. Unbelievable. But here's what I want to get to. Did you see the last phrase? Look at verse 41. He says, they repented at the preaching of Jonah, comma, and behold, Jesus says, something greater than what? Jonah is here. Love that statement. Now just underline it. It doesn't say someone greater than Jonah is here. You can read it as I can. It is something, and it is something. It's not a masculine term, and so he's not talking about himself. And you say, well, Scott, what, what's he talking about? Well, I think he's referring, is Jesus to all of God's work in Christ. Something, in other words, it's Christ, but he's talking about the Son, his life, his work, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. Something here is greater than Jonah. And so Jonah, if you will, points us, the book, to the person of Christ because Christ is greater than Jonah. And Jesus profoundly says, Something greater than Jonah is here. So how so? Just, just real quick. How so? I, I don't need to share this with you, but we can exalt Christ, and that's a wonderful thing, right? He's greater, number one in your notes, in his person. He's greater. Something greater is Jonah than here. Well, how? Well, it's Christ. Why? Why? Because though both men were Jews, though both men were prophets, Jesus is the very Son of God, and Jonah was a minor prophet. I'm not downplaying the minor prophet. We're magnifying the person of Christ. Jesus was the greatest prophet of all. Jonah was a sinful man. Jesus himself was sinless. Jonah was a man who became angry. And when they, speaking of Christ, reviled him on the cross, he did not revile in what? return. He's greater in his person, number one. Secondly here, he's greater in his pity. He's greater in his pity. Uh, Look back just if you're still in Matthew to Matthew chapter 9. You know this. He's greater in his pity. Just to touch on this, I love this scripture. Jesus in 935 of Matthew went throughout all the cities and the villages. Think about this teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, it says that he felt compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Stop there just for a second. I love that little phrase in 35 when, excuse me, 36, when he saw the crowds. We don't have time here. What do you see when you see people? 
I mean, I can't take you to all the places in the Gospels when it speaks of the eyes of Christ. It speaks of him seeing people in the image of God. I'm thinking when the roof was being torn apart in Mark chapter 2 and those four friends of the man on the paralytic lower the guy down right in the home of Peter's mother-in-law. And it's interesting, it says Jesus seen their faith. He doesn't look on the external. He sees their faith that they had to get this man, get the roof off and get their friend to Christ, but he saw their faith. In fact, when he came in in another section in the Gospel of Mark, it says that he saw Levi, the tax collector. We just kind of read it and go on. But I'm thinking, if you saw Levi, what would you think? Or do these people just pass us? I just pray that we could have the eyes of Christ. When the woman touched his cloak, he looked around to see the woman, and his eyes met her eyes. And what did he see, though? Look again at 9. What did he see? He saw them as harassed and, you see that word? Helpless, harassed. The word means flaying or skinning. Those of you who are hunters get that. The idea is to be battered. It's to be bullied. It's to be mangled. It's to be ripped apart, to be exhausted. And this flock that he was teaching had been fleeced. And they were bewildered, unable to rescue themselves. So he sees people who are harassed. Secondly, he sees people who are helpless. And there the word for helpless in the Old Testament, it was used in reference to corpses with, excuse the literalness of this, corpses with spikes driven through their temples, lying prostrate on the ground. And so when he comes to this city, he looks at these people. They're harassed, they're beaten, they're torn, they're fleeced, and they're helpless. One man said the picture of here is the sheep departed from the fold into the midst of wolves, and they are seen, if you will, with fleeces torn, half dead, bleeding from their wounds. What Christ saw was a bewildered, downcast people with no spiritual leaders and Oh, if we just had the eyes of Christ. But it wasn't just what he saw. This is what I'm getting to. Look at it again in 936. When he saw the crowds, he, what does it say? Had, you see that? Compassion. I think it's in the NASB. It says that he felt compassion. You say, what does that mean? It's the heart of God in Jonah. When Jesus saw these people, He felt compassion, and it refers to the intestines, and it refers to the bowels, if you will, and, you know, just sometimes it's literally used when it described Judas's death that his bowels gushed out, but primarily that word from compassion is used figuratively. It is used to represent the emotions of anxiety, remorse, fear, and that can directly affect the stomach. You know, sometimes if you and I worry too much, you can develop this thing called a what? An ulcer. But here's what I want you to know. When he looked at people, he was wrenched in his midsection. He didn't just see them. He felt it with a guttural, if you will, impact. He was wrenched in his midsection over the crowds. And so, beloved, listen, far from being just a healing machine, or displaying power to amaze the crowd, he feels their misery. And I had to ask myself, do I? Do I? Do I have the heart of God? Do I have the heart of Christ? I mean, I was just there three weeks ago. He came over from Bethany 
into the Mount of Olives. And it said in Luke 19, 41, when he drew near and saw the city, you know the phrase, he what? He wept over it. So I just pray, pray with me. I, I don't, I don't want to get so stuffy in this place where we begin to describe who God gives his mercy to and who he doesn't. Whom we think is acceptable and who's not acceptable. Listen, if if it went like that, none of us would be saved, right? I'll tell you, I wouldn't be saved. Coming out of the family of my dad, who was a fighting machine, physical fighter, on the beaches in Venice growing up and the toughest guy around. I, I mean... There's, he's legendary down there, what his friends would tell me before he came to Christ. And God was gracious to my dad, gracious to my mom, and gracious to me and to my family. I just, I want to make sure that we don't become pharisaical. I don't think we are. But listen, God's just so kind. When Jesus saw the city of Jerusalem, he wept over it. He felt it in his midsection. So listen, can I just say it that way? Something's greater than Jonah. Why? Because he's greater in person. He's greater in pity. Thirdly, he's greater in obedience. I don't need to tell you that. Jonah ran from God the Father. Jonah ran from his enemies. Jesus, on the other hand, runs towards his enemies, and he runs toward his Father in submission to his Father's will. He's greater in obedience, and we need his heart. Jonah became angry at God's command, And Jesus, you remember in Hebrews, for the joy set before him, what did he do? Endure the cross. So he's greater in his obedience. Fourthly, can I say it this way? He's greater in scope. Something greater, something greater than Jonah's here. He's greater in scope. And what I mean to say is he's he's greater in scope of ministry. Jonah's ministry, and Lord, praise the Lord, was to but one city. But Jesus, on the other hand, is the Savior of the what? Of the world. Nick, you got that one. He is. He's the Savior of the world. I'm thinking after the resurrection, Jesus said that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. This isn't just for us. This isn't just our holy huddle in this place. These are for teens that are on drugs This is for people who can't see their way out of life. This is for people that we interact with all the time here in the midst of our community and the surrounding communities. His name should be proclaimed. Of course, Jesus said in Mark 13, 10, that the gospel must first be proclaimed to all the nations and then the end will come, right? It's to everyone, the scope. Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the what? Of the earth. Maybe some of you need to go to Albania. You need to see what it's like to grow up in an atheistic country. You need to see what it's like when there's no hope. You need to see what it's like when most of the kids, half the kids have never heard the name of Christ at all. And we've got this message, and we've got the best message, and we've received that, and we need to give that. And finally, the fifth one, he's greater in in his death. Obviously, Jonah didn't die. He wanted to die, but he couldn't die. But Jesus really did die. I I leave you with this one, because I was there just weeks ago. Jonah, in Jerusalem, he waited outside the city, remember? To see if God would kill those he would not forgive. 
However, Jesus on the cross, outside the city, because he had to die outside the city, Jesus asked God to forgive those who killed him. He's so much greater, right? Jonah almost died for his own sins, but Jesus willingly died for the sins of the world. He died for your sins, and so he's greater. Something greater than Jonah is here. He's greater in person, pity, obedience, scope, and death. How wide is his mercy? This wide that Jesus would open his hands up to embrace you and I on the cross to die in our place. And his mercy is wide enough to include you.